Hi everyone, Michael Ames joins us today. He's an investigative reporter and features writer for Newsweek and Harper's Magazine. His work for Newsweek revealed the mishandling of military intelligence in the days following Bo Bergdahl's 2009 disappearance and the ensuing cover-up by the Pentagon. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Daily Beast, and The Believer. He worked for nine years in Idaho as a newspaper reporter and magazine editor, and now lives in Brooklyn. He's the co-author of American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl, and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second michael thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me on absolutely so the lovely and amazing dr lisa day is how i found out about you and i'm so glad that she um introduced us virtually yes well it's um i lived in idaho for 10 years and have now worked on an Idaho story for a number of years. So it all comes back home. <laughs> yes. So tell our listeners, I mean, they, they certainly heard about you from that. Here's my bio perspective, but tell our listeners a, just a little bit about, um, you know, why you're doing interviews and about your book. Yeah. Um, well, I just published uh, my first long form narrative journalism book uh, with Penguin Press. I'm a co-author um, of American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan. It's um, uh, the definitive history we, we certainly aspire to tell, and I believe we have told, of the whole Bergdahl story, from his youth and growing up in Idaho to joining the Army, walking off his, his outpost in Afghanistan, and the five years that he was kept in captivity and the U.S. government worked um, or didn't work, as the case was mm-hmm. in some in some of that time, to get him home, and then the political firestorm that came after, and eventually his trial. So, I this researching this story consumed my life for um, four years, and uh, I had the really the the good fortune to be in a position to be able to tell the story with my co-author Matt Farwell, and I think I think the book is a really I think we've done a good job shedding light on something that was a political issue that really is more of a human story. 
Mm, yes, absolutely. What what got you so invested in this? And, and it always interests me. Uh, like we've we've interviewed um, Mike Resendez from well, formerly with the Boston Globe Spotlight team, and mm-hmm. I always was fascinated by how a journalist gets into these kinds of stories, and it just takes over a good portion of their life to put it out. Yeah. Well, um, I'd say, you know, I've, I've been getting that question a lot and, <laughs> and, and, and I've kind of evolved my answer on it recently because the, the simple answer is, well, the story chose me mm. and this is true. Uh, logistically, I lived in Idaho. I lived in Bo Bergdahl's hometown. I was editing a magazine in Haley, Idaho and his father, Bob Bergdahl was our UPS driver. Huh, so I saw this from a human angle early on from when Bo was captured in 2009 and, and it brought the war home in a, a much realer way than, than, it, than it had for me prior to that. And then I think it does for most um, Americans because so few uh, of our citizens fight in these wars. But that answer, I think I realized in the last just week or two, really only told the superficial level of it. Another, the other, the truer story for me is, or the true answer for me is, I was outraged by this. Um, I had left Idaho and then moved to New York and was working as a journalist there when he was released in 2014 in the prisoner swap for the five Taliban officials in Guantanamo Bay. That's what triggered the political firestorm. And by this point, living in New York, I had befriended people who worked in media and had been around um, a little closer to the media machine and saw a little bit about how the sausage gets made. And when Mm -hmm. I saw how his family and his friends and people in Idaho were described and treated and how I, when I knew that there, that those media um, actions resulted in death threats for people who were friends of mine, I was really outraged just on a human level. And I knew the stories that we were hearing in the press weren't true. I knew that there was a deeper, more complicated truth out there. And I set out to tell it. Mm. What kind of uh, help did you get from family and friends and, you know, that were obviously affected by this at a very personal level that we reading this in the media don't, people don't, um, they want the sensationalism, but they don't get into, this is affecting real people. So how were they, I'm sure that they had trust issues after what they've been through. How did you um, form those relationships so they would open up to you? And what was their reaction to you doing this book? I think that they, that my having lived there for almost 10 years was just a real advantage. It's a, it's a small town and I was a familiar face. People knew me. Um, I wasn't just another reporter flying in from somewhere else. Um, I had left a few years, two years earlier, but that's not that long. And um, so there was a built-in level of trust there because it is kind of a it's a it's a tight knit community there in the Wood River Valley of Central Idaho. It's kind of a it's a progressive bubble in a conservative area, but it's also just straight up small and small towns. It's not really about your politics. People just rely on one another and get to know each other really well. So I had worked there waiting tables and reporting mm-hmm. the local paper and um, people knew me from when I was younger. So that was a big step in the first place. But then later on, we needed to get, um, we, we ultimately 
I sat down with Bergdahl's parents last summer and we were the, I was the first reporter they talked to since everything, since their son was released. And, you know, I can't speak for them. I think they just, they, they, they read the work I had done prior and they determined that I was coming at this with the right motivations Mm -hmm. to tell the truth and not to twist it for political purposes. And, you know, I was just humbled and honored to have that responsibility. And I think we just connected on a human level and, and there was a big, but, but there is a trust leap and uh, I'm and, and fortunate that they made it. Yeah, exactly. How, how much did you have to be concerned with or how much were you concerned with you getting death threats and you dealing with blowback for choosing to do a book about this? You know, I expected some of that would happen, but so far we, we haven't had much of that. And maybe that's just because, um, you know, it's it's far enough in the past now, and Bergdahl's sort of a forgotten figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, Donald Trump still still tweets about him, still calls him a traitor, which there is no evidence for, as our book explains. Um, so it's certainly there are people out there who would be scandalized by this, would be triggered by this. Um, I've seen a little bit of anger in some of the talks I've given from people in the army, but time and time again, when people hear the deeper story, they start to realize that, oh, wait, the, the army and the government, surprise, surprise, wasn't telling them the whole truth. Which I don't know why that's ever a surprise to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Here's the truth, swallow yeah, I mean, it whole, you know, I mean, it is, but yeah, there are people that do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, Bergdahl is used as a convenient uh, scapegoat for a variety of different reasons. That was one of the first stories I did on this was that the men who were being sent on these searches to go looking for him uh, for weeks and months after the the top commanders, the army and the generals knew he was no longer in Afghanistan and these guys were being sent to look for him anyway. Some of them knew that was um, that he was being used as, a, as an excuse, as a ruse. And some of them understood that maybe even that was a good strategic decision from a military standpoint. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's a bit of a thorny, it's a bit of a complex explanation. And our news and political system, um, as I don't need to explain, <laughs> doesn't deal very well with complicated uh, explanations. No, they really want, I mean, the public craves for those quick sound bites. I mean, everybody's digesting a lot of information so they can only digest. That's something I wanted to ask you about. You know, you're, you're in the industry and how, how, what's your take on how we digest news today as opposed to, you know, even five years ago? Yeah, I've been thinking about this and um, more and more because it's getting worse and worse and the country seems gripped by this real like crisis of information and understanding. And what used to strike me as kind of a, I used to look at the left right um, thing as a false choice. And it was being promoted for a variety of reasons, mostly political fundraising, gerrymandering, which creates congressional districts that are all one or the other party and the media. And I thought, okay, this is our system. This is five years ago now. I thought, okay, this is our system. Um, it's kind of this gridlock is good business for everyone. It helps the, the political parties raise money. It helps 
corporate media make profits. And, um, but now something I think it, where it, it used to be this kind of accepted way of doing business now has turned into seemingly we're going to push it, you know, we're going to redline this structure as far as it'll go. And I think it's, it's frightening because yeah. not every, a lot of people have, can now see that this is a false choice. It's not that simple. Um, most people don't fit into one box or the other, but a lot of people can't see that. And a lot of people are um, vulnerable, I think, to tribalist messages and to being on one side or the other of what is framed as a moral right or wrong. And I think when these people, when, when those vulnerable people um, are told these things, it's a really dangerous. It's a, it's a ticking time bomb. I mean, you saw what happened during before the 2016 election and the man mm -hmm. who drove to the pizzeria in Washington, DC, because he thought that children were being uh, molested in the basement. Do you remember that story? Mm -hmm. Yep, I do. And he, and he drove there with a gun because he was going to free these children. And the whole thing was obviously a ruse. Well, that might be an extreme example, but I think that sort of thing where extreme explanations for things um, people believe them and that's dangerous. It is. And it so ties into the technological age, how much information is at our fingertips, but it's not regulated. And yet we don't want to give it as some, some kind of governing body control over what we're allowed to see and read. It's such a wild, wild west that, uh, right we don't even know we can't even begin to wrap our head around okay well this is freedom we get information but then who's spinning it uh how is it tailored for which audience what kind of money is is involved in why things are tailored the way or power you know why things are tailored the way they are and if we do regulate it well who the heck you know gets appointed to be the regulator and why <laughs> it's just so many yeah well I mean, TV and radio was regulated for a long time, um, yeah. has been regulated for a long time, back when people had more faith in these outlets. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think regulation is simple or easy, but I do think you have to have some regulation or else this disinformation and mass fraud yes. is inevitable. And that's really what's going on. It's fraud on a mass scale. You know, fraud has been used is a strong word to describe also what is pretty common in New York real estate advertising. <laughs> so what helps sell a condominium in New York city, if you're the head of the Trump or the Kushner family business, well, if you're already engaging in, 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 you know, sort of small scale fraud, then making the shift to large scale fraud isn't maybe doesn't seem like that big a deal. Right. And that's what, that's what bothers me, and and that's what I think is is dangerous. Uh, a true, you know, Pandora's box. Um, and I, I just hope that it's a that we can pull back. Um, but this story in the, our book, American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl's story. It's this is I'm I'm glad we're talking about this because this is why I think it's so relevant now. Is, is that story, the Bergdahl moment, was really a good dry run for what we now see happening all the time. Yes. Where stories are, twi are twisted and, and turned into propaganda and simple myths that are easily repeated 
um, by the president and by people in the media who can be duped into it. Um, and this was in 2014. Right. So I think it's important that, that, that we learn how something like this came about so that we can be more skeptical and more educated in the future. Right, right. We ask people, don't believe everything that you see out there, but then some of it you should believe. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It's I a mean, quagmire. Uh, you know, they call this, me, me, well, media literacy. You know, that's the, and, you know, there's an argument that we should be teaching me, uh, media literacy so people can tell the difference. Right, right. And it, boy, does it tie into uh, the human condition of narcissism. I mean... Oh, it, it goes right there. Um, well, didn't they take narcissism out of the DSM a few years back? Yes, they did. And I'm like, wow, oh, who plotted that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I had wanted to ask you actually about things from the DSM for sure. this topic in this story. Because so one aspect of, of the story that's complicated to tell, but that ended up making a lot of sense to the people who, who went to Bergdahl's legal hearings is that he was diagnosed um, um, by several different psychiatrists working independently and at different times with schizotypal personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And if you read the, the, you know, the markers for that disorder, you might think that someone is just eccentric or, or unusual. Um, and, to actually be diagnosed, you'd have to go and seek diagnosis, which he was eventually given for free because he was the subject of a massive court martial. Um, but I was hoping, you know, we could talk a little bit about that and whether or not you've, you've, you've gone into that on some of your shows about mental health screening for people going into the military. I mean, absolutely. I'm not a, I just always have to preface that I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I come at this from the patient perspective. I interview plenty of people, you know, on the subject. And I always say this, I find it utterly fascinating. I mean, I just did this this morning. I went back and looked at some of the shows that I did, you know, six, seven years ago. And hands down, I mean, I've interviewed so many different people. We've run the gamut of topics on, on my show. I mean, it's mental health news radio. So anything under that umbrella is up for discussion. And still the shows that garner the most plays every single time are on narcissism. So the public is, you know, starving for this information. They were starving for it six, seven years ago, and they're still, you know, starving it, it now, starving for it now, which I find utterly fascinating. But yeah, ask away and I'll, I'll pull from my, from the archives uh, <laughs> on, you know, different clinicians I've spoken to. Well, have you, have you spoken to people who, who have had experience with um, people going into the military and then not being able to, or to, to sustain their military careers because of mental health issues. Um, yes. and, and, and I guess I should say, but you know, maybe some of the more subtle mental health issues. Yeah, absolutely. I always, uh, I always find it interesting when you have uh, organizations that are wonderful, they help uh, you know, veterans and help them with their mental health challenges. And they talk a lot about resilience, which is a wonderful term. It's 
a wonderful thing to use, but there's this sort of stigma around, okay, well, you're resilient if you can be in the military, stick it out, and deal with that kind of a life um, and, and be able to stay in it. And you're, but you're also resilient, resilient if you get out of it and you have some sort of uh, mental illness and you can't continue that kind of a career. There's something missing in that kind of study um, that's really helpful because in my world, mental health is not mental illness. Mental health is just mental health. And right. why do some, why are some people, what is it about someone's makeup that allows them to stay in this kind of organism that is the uh, military life and not, I don't know, be able to mask the mental health challenges that, that come out of it or not be affected um, in, in a way other people are. And it's not a sign of weakness that other people can't stay in that and stay mentally healthy. There's something missing in that component that uh, we're all trying to figure out. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the military is a very large, large, it's, it's too simplistic, you know, just to try to figure it out. Yes. I think by saying the military, because there's so many different jobs and so Absolutely. many different careers people can have. And, and, you know, I mean, the military for Bo Bergdahl, this story ended up, being the thing that both broke him, but then also the thing that brought him back to health. Right. Um, he didn't belong there in the first place is something that I think everyone on all sides of the story has come to the agreement on. And I think that has helped lower some of the temperature around his story to a degree. Mm. And there's a widespread understanding that he washed out of the Coast Guard with an anxiety-induced panic attack brought on by what the forensic psychiatrist later determined was PTSD from when he was younger and schizotypal personality disorder. And when he went to enlist in the army two years later, the army should have required him to have mental health screening before he was let in and, and, and received a waiver. And they just ignored that, papered over it. The recruiters who have their own incentives papered over it and they, and they took him in with, when that, during a time in 2008 when they were lowering standards. Right. Now when you lower standards, the military normally will get people with, with felony records or with rap sheets or with various you know, more overt mental health issues. Mm -hmm. But in his case, this was, a, this was a subtle case. And he was an was a intelligent guy who, who knew how to be a soldier, but he was also living in a fragmented reality. But what's interesting, and I think from a, I was thinking about this before our call, from a mental health standpoint, I think it raises a really interesting question because we keep, it's easy to say, well, he wasn't fully sane or he wasn't fully mentally healthy. But it made me think of my friend whose son was 13 years old when I first started working on this story. And I never forget it. He said to me, so when you go into the army, it's legal to just kill people? <laughs> and I said, well, it's kind of more complicated than that. And he goes, well, how? Explain it to me. <laughs> and I realized how sort of absurd I was sounding trying to explain right. the legalities of military murder and how if you're someone who, like Bo Bergdahl, was obsessed with ethics and right behavior and wrong behavior and you'd grown up homeschooled Christian, and then you're put in this different scenario, 
where the rules have changed to such a degree that there are certain times where you can murder someone and certain times you can't, that is deeply destabilizing. Yes, absolutely. And you and, live in a state of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, and but then it raises the question, aren't all of those men and women living in that state of cognitive dissonance? Yes. Because, when, because murdering people should have a pretty narrow uh, definition, and especially with our wars of counterinsurgency, it's an ever-shifting, the goalposts are constantly shifting, and the rules of engagement are constantly shifting. And, you know, was Bo Bergdahl insane? Or was the system he was put in insane? And I think that's even though that couldn't have been brought up in court for obvious reasons, I think now looking back on it and as we look at our society and the way we fight wars, I think that's a totally legitimate question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the, even just a couple of years ago, it, it's been interesting for me to see how mental health is now an acceptable um, and even touted um, subject to talk about. I mean, as soon as you get, you know, places like Walmart doing press releases about how they're opening up mental health clinics in their Walmart stores. I mean, they don't do that for the nail salons that open up in Walmarts, but they do it about a mental health clinic. You, as soon as you see big business lining up behind uh, mental health initiatives, you're like, ah, okay, so that's popular now. It's popular to align yourself with with mental health, which was something that was not popular forever. And that was you know, quarter four of 2018. So yeah, when it's a good evolution, mm -hmm, it is. And is a little scary because once you get big business behind it, how are we going to twist it <laughs> to be about money and not really right. about serving people? But um, right. at the time that this was going on, mental health was not at all. It was, you, you just didn't go near it with a 10 foot pole. Right. Well, I mean, where, so, I mean, I think it's, I, I grew up before I moved to Idaho in my twenties, I grew up in New Jersey and in New Jersey for a variety of reasons, I think, and in the Northeast it, there's, or at least maybe in the mid Atlantic new uh, mental health. And, you know, you think about the Sopranos, right? The whole topic of the Sopranos was the, the, the entire point of the series was Tony going to talk to his yes. therapist yep. <laughs> and, and, and the stigma is being reduced and tough guys and tough girls are being encouraged to talk about it. And I think that's a good thing. Where Bo was from in Idaho and specifically his, his kind of um, religious upbringing, I don't think this was a topic that was really discussed. No, not at all. And, and the, the, there were fewer psychologists, fewer psychiatrists, just less of it, less resources, less discussion of it, less academic uh, institutions around the area, um, a lot of religion in the area from the Mormon history. Um, and then his family was Orthodox Presbyterian. And I don't think they ever really considered this. But I will tell you, having interviewed them for many hours for this book, they eventually did, they, they were really torn. They said, well, no, he's not ill. He's not mentally ill. And they really rejected that idea. Not that all these disorders are necessarily an illness, but as time went on, they started to accept that, that, that two things could be true at once. There, he was a very smart, brilliant, insightful young man who also had some untreated issues. And I think, um, you know, at one point talking about schizotypal, the, the psychiatrist in the court martial at Fort Bragg, said, well, it often appears in um, first 
first degree family members. And Bergdahl's father, who's a major character in the book, said to me, you know, maybe I have a little bit of that. Mm. And to me, that was really interesting where he said, you know, okay, I'm not, I'm obviously, he held a job for 28 years. He didn't have social problems, um, but he recognized a little bit of something similar in this sort of dreaminess and rich imaginative world between him and his son. And there's a lot of parallels. Obviously, his son's manifested in a much more tragic way, whereas with him, Bob, his manifested in this all or nothing, I'm going to save my son. And when um, people pick up the book, you, 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 you can follow Bob's story, which is really quite incredible. People remember that he grew out his beard. But one of the reasons he grew that beard is because he wanted to go over there basically undercover and make his way to his son's captors and offer himself up in exchange for his son. Right. The whole story is incredible. And I really, I, uh, it's, it's, it's better beach reading than it may look when you see oh another book about the Afghanistan war, but it's really a story about a family and a story about the individuals involved in this. How's your journey been going through this with your own mental health? Um, it's, that's a good question. I, I, you know, stress obviously is always um, something that has to be balanced. I, um, Unfortunately, had my own major loss that happened while I was working on this book. I lost a very close friend and my mother in the span of about 10 days. Mm. And um, my friend was sick fighting cancer. My mother was healthy and uh, was struck down by sepsis in a very, very unexpected and shocking way. So I was dealt a pretty serious blow um, and was mm-hmm. in grief and, and was in, you know, predictable stakes of reaction to all that. And I had to, but I had to get the work done as well. I was on a deadline. I had publishers who had contracts (laughs) over my head and I couldn't just run away even though I wanted to. Um, So what I ended up doing was really putting mental health in uh, uh, approaching it in a way that at other points in my life, I just approached my physical health. I, you know, your physical health to me when I was younger was you go to the gym, you exercise, you eat well, and you'll get healthier. And I, I tried to do a similar thing with mental health. I sought out a therapist. I um, made sure to meditate. Mm-hmm. I made sure to get better sleep. And I can't say to you that it was easy, right. but um, dealing with your mental health and getting past the stigmas is so important for everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I, the entire reason I created this network was to just, um, certainly mental illness is uh, something that should not be stigmatized, but neither is the term mental health and they shouldn't be lumped together. They're not, they're not the same thing. We all uh, have mental health. (laughs) Not everybody has mental illness. So Right. And anybody can be diagnosed with something at some point in their life um, right. that can lean towards the mental illness side of things. So it's just, it's fascinating to get people to, now it's nice to hear people talk about it so much more openly. I can just tell from going and hanging out in places outside of the mental health bubble, you know, let's say like a hair salon where couple years ago, I would bring up, oh, I have a 
mental health, you know, news radio show and then people go, oh, and get quiet. And now they're like, oh, really? Oh, let me talk to you about my anxiety and my ADHD and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's so much yeah. more. No, I, I see it too. I just saw it today on Twitter. Someone was talking about the benefits of therapy and it's very, and it's just refreshing. I see it as just like a gust of fresh air. I think yes. it's fantastic. Um, I, I grew up in a talking uh, way in a talking household and, and, and a talking culture in New Jersey. And um, so I'm a big believer in talk therapy, but I know there's different forms for different people. And I just think it's fantastic um, in a proactive way. I also think just a little more on your question. One of the nicest reviews, we've had a lot of great reviews on the book. And one of them was um, from a reviewer who said it, 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 I don't remember it, exact words but along the lines of it raises questions of the mysteries of human nature and uh he was talking about the the war and bergdahl and captivity and bergdahl's father and and those their aspects specifically but when i read it i thought you know this experience for me has also shed a bit of light on the mysteries of human nature yeah and the and 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 finding purpose and and staying um staying true to yourself absolutely absolutely i find the entire field endlessly fascinating you know i've had people yeah, say, well why, why would yeah. you do a whole thing about mental health well because there's never going to be nothing to talk about <laughs> right 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 well, tell our listeners where they can find the book and find out more about you and your incredible work. Yes, thank you. Well, the book, American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan, you can find it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble um, nationwide or your local independent bookseller. <laughs> um, I, I am in between projects and uh, taking a little bit of a, of a post-book mental recess <laughs> but um you can but but uh for people interested i've written a, on a number of topics for harper's magazine and newsweek uh, the daily beast and other places and you can check that out at my website which is michael-ames.com and i'm also on twitter uh which i joined a long time ago under an old nickname which i never thought i would be using for professional reasons but it's at merkel m-i-r-k-e-l and um yeah, that's where I am. And, and, and like I said, the book, uh, we, we poured our hearts and soul into it. My co-author, Matt Farwell, fought in the war, so he really understands this and, and also has dealt with it. He's written quite a bit about PTSD, so if the listeners are interested in reading about PTSD, Matt has done a lot of interesting writing for Playboy and Rolling Stone um, and New York Times uh, War, uh, New York Times Magazine at War. And yeah, I encourage people to look out, to look up our work and to pick up a copy of American Cipher. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show and, you know, on a Friday afternoon, no less. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Christian. Absolutely. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. 
and also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.